Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're talking to Michael Lewis about the pandemic, the people who saw it coming, and why they weren't listened to. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics, and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Helen and I spoke to Michael Lewis a few days ago. He was in California. We're talking about his new book, which is called The Premonition. And it tells the story of a group of public health officials and scientists, many of whom had been worrying about a pandemic for years, in some cases for decades, and they'd been preparing for it, indeed preparing for something like what we've all been through over the last year. The book is about them, but it's also about American government and the question of why these people found it so hard to be heard. At the heart of the story is the CDC. We talk about the CDC a lot in this interview, the Centers for Disease Control. I just looked at the CDC website to check that I got their name right. They've got a new tagline, CDC 24-7, colon, saving lives, protecting people, trademark. If you read Michael Lewis's book, you will wonder whether that is the right tagline for the CDC. And yet, this was once the jewel in the crown of American public health, indeed of American government. And part of Michael Lewis's story is about what went wrong over decades at the heart of American government. The book is also about a small group of individuals, one of them whom we talk about in this interview is Charity Dean, a public health official in California who, by force of personality, but also by a kind of almost strange foresight, saw things that were coming before anyone else. And the story is partly about why she found it so hard to get people to do the right thing. But we started our conversation with a piece of history. We begin in 1976 and the question of why that year matters for now. Michael, this book is in many ways haunted by history, the lessons learned and the lessons not learned from earlier pandemics. I wondered if we could start, it's sort of where you end, but it's at the heart of the story, if we could start in 1976, because the story of the swine flu outbreak of that year and the CDC's response is so important for understanding what we've been through and particularly what the United States has been through in the last year. Can you just tell us why that story matters for your story? It doesn't appear to the end of my story, but it was this great mystery to me. And it was how the CDC had acquired the reputation it had when it was clearly so inept, when an actual disease arose that needed to be controlled. And you talk to old timers at the CDC and they say the place began to change in the late 70s and early 80s. And that the inciting incident would appear to be a swine flu. It was a swine flu outbreak in Fort Dix, New Jersey in, I think it was the late spring of 76, end of the flu season. And a bunch of soldiers got sick. One died. The flu that was isolated was a new strain. So the population had no immunity to it. In the known history of such things, there'd never been a new strain of flu identified that had shown to be very transmissible and lethal that hadn't resulted in some form of pandemic. So all the experts are brought together in the CDC, led by 
the career public servant at the time, David Sensor, who ran the CDC. There was a broad consensus that the thing to do was rush a vaccine and vaccinate the entire American population. It was a curious situation in the world because I don't know if it's true or not, but public health officials at the time thought that only the United States had the capacity to do this. So everybody else just took in the world just took a pass. In some cases, they sort of said, we don't think this is a big problem. But the truth was they didn't have a choice. So the United States, the head of the CDC, sends a letter to his boss saying, this is what the experts think. He doesn't take a vote. He just does it himself because he knows that if it goes wrong, someone is going to take a fall and he doesn't want everyone in the room to take the fall with him. It was a very brave thing to do. Anyway, flash forward to the fall of that year and you got the American population in the beginning of a vaccination program and millions of people are vaccinated and pretty quickly problems arise. Some are false. Some people get sick but it isn't related to the vaccine, but the vaccine is blamed for it. And then some people get sick and the vaccine is actually responsible. It's not many, but it's enough to cast aspersions on the, on the vaccine program. And at the same time, swine flu never reappears. It just goes away. And no one knows why. The experts were limited in what they knew. It was a best guess. And it was the then Ford administration moving to the Carter administration Censor has fired. And it was kind of a curious situation because he was a career public servant and he didn't have to go, but he sort of fell on his sword. And soon thereafter, the political process starts to grab a hold of this job called director of the Center for Disease Control. And instead of a career public servant who has some protections and who serves, uh, you know, Censor had been there for, I think, 12, 13, 14 years, been there a while, the job becomes under Reagan a presidentially appointed job, a politically appointed job, which means, among other things, the person there is going to be there for a pretty short period of time, 18 months, two years, going to be on a much shorter leash and fireable at the whim of a president. And you talk to the people at the CDC who were there for that transition and that whole period, the whole drama. Censor himself, by the way, feels ostracized and descends into alcoholism. It's a horrible story. Sort of is fingered as a culprit when, in fact, he made a brave and right decision. It just turned out wrong. But the people at the CDC would say that that's the moment where, one, the place started to become more politicized. If you did research, like into AIDS, a Republican administration would want to know everything you were doing and they'd stop some of it. If you did research that, you know, as they did, connected the use of aspirin in babies with Rye syndrome, the aspirin manufacturers rose up complained, the White House squashed the research, that it became a less independent enterprise, the CDC. And the person at the top was now chosen from a much smaller pool of candidates who happened to politically please whoever happened to be in the White House. So you were less assured of capability. And the person chosen was now managing the institution with a view to the 18 months, two years they'd be running it, three years, four years on the outside, instead of the 10 or 15 years they, they had been running it. So instead of a homeowner, you had a renter in the place. And I think just generally with the other things that are going on in American culture and media and politics, the CDC became more and more afraid of its shadow, at least in its behavior domestically. Which brings us to the really <laughs> prelude to this drama, where if you went and spent time, as I did, with a local public health officer anywhere in the United States who was trying to manage 
other kinds of disease outbreaks, tuberculosis or hepatitis C or whatever it might be. And they turn to the CDC, they often find the CDC is more of a problem than an aid, that they are kind of an academic institution that is very ill-suited to battlefield command when things get messy. What strikes me though, Michael, as you're telling that story is that how come then by the time we get to like 2020, the CDC has the reputation that it does such that so many expectations can be put upon it that it is actually going to be able to act in a decisive manner at the beginning of the crisis? It had not faced a big challenge. People hadn't really seen it in operation. To the people who had to interact with it in battlefield kind of conditions where there were reputations on the line and decisions had to be made in conditions of ambiguity, and it didn't have a reputation like that with those people. Those people had, in many cases, become kind of hostile to the CDC or come to see it as a different sort of institution than people imagined it, not a centers for disease control but a Centers for Disease Observation and Reporting. Very good at doing kind of academic work that brought glory on the CDC, just the academic work, but not good at actually managing disease. And to me, the takeaway from all this, yes, it helps to explain the situation the country found itself in in last January, February, March, and the inability of the CDC to actually really do its job. But it's part of a larger drift in American government. I mean, going back, taking a longer view, but kind of starting in the 60s, there was a transformation of a lot of these jobs that were just kind of management technical jobs requiring experts to make their best judgments about how to handle a particular problem, like how to control a disease. A lot of these jobs had been career civil service jobs, which put some distance between them and the political process. Not total distance, put them on a longer leash. And the jobs were turned into politically appointed jobs. And, you know, at the same time that the politics becomes ever more short term oriented. So I, I don't think it's just the CDC that suffered as an institution because of this, but this is just a pretty vivid example. In the book, you quote an exchange of letters. So a book was written about the 76 swine flu affair called The Swine Flu Affair by Richard Neustadt and a colleague. And you quote an exchange of letters between him and a senior health official, because this report was very influential, but also pretty disreputable. And yet there's a line that Neustadt writes that really struck me, where he said, I quote, unless persons of your distinction as public health professionals can be induced to come to grips with the hard issues posed by governmental action through a federal system in a television age, especially after Watergate, then this system is going to break down. And even though it's clearly the case that seen from the perspective of the public health officials, there's something profoundly regrettable about the politicization of everything. It's also a fact. I mean, I think Neustadt has a point, which is this gulf does exist, and it crops up a lot through your book. There is a set of expectations from the public health officials that the health story should win out, and it keeps colliding against the horrors of politics. Do you think he has a point? Well, he obviously has a point. The backstory to that is riveting to me. So Neustadt was a Harvard professor who was most famous for a book called Presidential Power. He caught the attention of President Kennedy with that book. There was a scandal in the early days of the Kennedy administration involving a a missile program. And Kennedy wanted to know what went wrong. And he thought, I'll bring in Neustadt from Harvard and give him a hall pass to talk to all the insiders involved in the decision-making 
and he'll write a report just for me. And that's what he did. And he wrote a report and it was instantly classified and only people with the security clearance read it. One of those people was the later Secretary of Health and Human Services, Joseph Califano, who was there when the swine flu affair occurs. And he has the idea, I'm going to get Newstat to come back in and explain how all this went down. So Newstat was writing not for a popular audience, but for an audience of one, Joe Califano, who has already fired David Sensor. So he writes this thing that is very damning of Sensor himself, personally damning of Sensor himself, and no one around Sensor sees the situation as Newstat sees it. To the point that the public health officials were naive about how it would look if it went wrong, I think is false. And that's reflected in how Sensor made the decision. He didn't involve a lot of other people in the formal public process because he knew if it went wrong, it was going to be a mess and someone was going to be punished for it. But the truth is that the public health officials, they were faced with this decision. What do you do? Do you vaccinate everybody or wait? And if you wait and what you think is going to happen happens, lots of people die. Do you not do that because of the way it looks? Sensor couldn't bring himself to do that. So Newstat has a point that, yes, you live in an age where you're going to be punished unfairly for doing the right thing. But where does that leave you if you're the public health official? Are you supposed to sort of bend to that or do the right thing? And so to me, he has a point, but it's kind of a shallow point. It's not a deep point. It doesn't change the behavior that you would hope would come out of the CDC. It does explain why when things go wrong, the response is brutal. There was a kind of unearned condescension in Newstat's account, I thought, and not just me. I mean, the people in public health couldn't quite believe the take. And he doesn't ever grapple in his report with the counterfactual. And the counterfactual is the experts, the people who are best equipped to make this decision, thought that it was pretty likely that there was going to be a pandemic flu. And what happens if you don't vaccinate everybody? It's worse. So yeah, he has a point. I don't know what you do with the point. Isn't it in a way though, the deeper question, and obviously this gets us into the present, who ultimately gets to decide what the risks should be? So is it the public health officials who get to decide themselves or do they get to advise people who will ultimately be accountable for those decisions politically? Because in the end, they are political decisions about what to do about competing risks. Right. Well, there's never any question about who's going to make the decision because President Ford made the decision. David Sensor didn't make the decision. So his job was to give Ford his best advice and Ford took it. So it's not that the public health officials are ultimately unaccountable or ultimately not on some kind of string that's tied to the political process. It's sort of like how loose or tight that string is. And at the local level, in normal times, the public health official has extremely broad powers to take action and can do things like, I don't know, shut down a school if there's a measles outbreak or shut down a restaurant if lots of people are getting sick in it or shut down a medical clinic if they suspect that hepatitis C is being transmitted by dirty needles, whatever it is. But ultimately, they're answerable to the political process and they can be fired. And in fact, it's one of the kind of tropes of the public health official's life that you take this job to be fired from this job, that eventually someone you're going to so irritate someone that you're going to get fired. 
just doing the job well. So yes, the decision ultimately resides with some elected official, but do you want some elected official who doesn't know anything about, I don't know, the likelihood of swine flu sweeping the country, actually making the decision without the public health official leaning on them? I don't think so. So I suppose the thought behind my question is, in the story you tell, so the, the central figure, the hero of your story is a woman called Charity Dean, but there's a group called the Wolverines, who are a group of health experts, sort of almost under the radar, who've been studying all of this, anticipating it for years, decades, in some cases, they have all this experience. And they are so consistently right about the disease. They're so consistently right about how this is going to play out as a health question. And in a way, they're so consistently wrong about the politics. So my frustration, I wanted to say to them, all of this time that you spent studying how diseases work, you should have spent some of that time studying how politics works, because that's what I got from that quote, that sense that there's still that gap. And they're taken aback consistently when the state of California doesn't do the right thing. And yet the reason the state of California doesn't do the right thing is political, not medical. That was the thing I wanted to say to them. You could have spent more time, as it were, on the social science. So what would the social science have got them? What could they have done differently than generate the right answer for the political process to act on? I guess, I mean, it's a good question. I guess the thing that I was struck by was their sense of disappointment that the public officials didn't do the right thing. In a way, it's the reverse of the swine flu story. In the swine flu story, the 76 story, the health official takes a decision and the president just does it. And then the consequences are the consequences. And this is the opposite story. The politicians won't do what they're told, or they do it too late. And they move, as you say, very quickly from saying, this will be fine to saying there's nothing we can do in the window where something could have been done. If you ask me what should they have studied, I don't know. But there seemed like a kind of gap in understanding. They still seem to have an illusion that it was 76 in some way. And it wasn't. I don't know how it would have been different. But does that not speak to you at all? I think it's a little unfair because I think much of their frustration was directed not at the politicians, but at the public health officials, <laughs> at the CDC and the WHO early on. Their job was to understand quickly what was going on, for example, in Wuhan. And to the epidemiologists in the Wolverines group, it was pretty clear. And they were shocked that the health officials weren't doing their jobs of raising alarms. Now, the politicians could do whatever they want with what the health officials say, but instead of creating discomfort for the politicians, the ones who wanted to just kind of shove it to one side and ignore it and say this wasn't a problem, they created cover by saying this isn't a threat to American life. I guess it's the difference between Charity Dean, who was deputy, and her boss in California. That's correct. That's correct. And Charity Dean, who's number two in the state of California, is told through the middle of February. She's not allowed to use the word pandemic because it just scares people. So it isn't the job of the public health structure, it's the public health officials, to provide cover for the politicians who aren't doing the right thing. It's the opposite. The politician's job is to provide cover for the health officials to do the unpopular thing. So there was a kind of a joint failure. And at the very least, the health officials should be making the politicians uncomfortable if they're not going to do what they should be doing. Now, you might just say, you know, who cares if 2 million Americans die? Let's just let it rip. Herd immunity, whatever it is. 
but that's a bold position. Yeah, no, I'm not taking that position. <laughs> okay, no. I, I, maybe that's where you were. You sound like that's where you are. No, no, it's more that sense that the health officials, the people who understood the disease wanted an outcome. They wanted the decision makers to make the right decisions. And the fact that those decisions were not made. Most of their wrath, most of their anger was directed at the health officials. They were not under illusions that you're not under about elected officials. They knew how difficult it was going to be. And they knew that it would take a kind of leadership. They aren't thinking it's just so simple. Do this. They know it's complicated. They know it has to be sold and explained. So they aren't dumb. They really aren't dumb. They aren't naive in the way you imagine them, I don't think. They're not like, oh, we're just really good at science, but we don't understand life. They aren't like that. So in the case of my characters, the Wolverine characters, these are not people who just kind of were floating around outside government being wise asses about everything. These were the people who invented the U.S. pandemic response from inside the Bush White House. They'd been right up close to politics. So they are savvy, but it's more they're exasperated by the failure of the public health system, not, of course, Donald Trump is a, a wreck, and I'm not sure how much more they expected of him. I'll tell you this, as an aside, there's this interesting counterfactual. As divorced as Donald Trump's administration was from any previous administration, as insistent as he was that he had nothing to learn from the Obama administration, and as distasteful as he found even the Bush people... Some of the old knowledge was there in the beginning of the Trump administration. I think there were just too many places to fill to find pure Trump loyalists to fill them. And his first director of Homeland Security was a fellow named Tom Bossert. And Bossert, among his first acts, was to call Richard Hatchett and Carter Mesher, two of the Wolverines, whom he knew and had watched develop the U.S. pandemic strategy back during the Bush administration and say, I want to badge you in now to the White House in the event of a pandemic. So you're here to run it. And Bossert to this day thinks that had he not been fired by John Bolton, when John Bolton arrived in the White House, that he would have brought those two guys in and that he actually could have persuaded Trump to let them run it and be uncomfortable for six or eight weeks. And the way he was going to do it was, I'm to blame. You're going to fire me and you're going to take all the upside. And in a couple of months, the United States is going to look better than anybody else in its response. And you're going to look like a hero. If you interviewed Bossert, he'd tell you, he'd say, he's not sure that's what would happen, but he had enough success in navigating his relationship with Trump. And Trump was sufficiently unpredictable that he thought actually that might've happened. And so I don't think it's out of the question that the political response could have been different because the leadership could have behaved differently. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Isn't there a distinction in the position that you're articulating in response to David's last question between having an idealism about the way in which the public health administrative state was going to work which I think is reasonable and could be expected. And they look at it and they say, look, how can it just work so badly? And some of the stories that you tell are shocking and it doesn't seem to matter whether people are competent or not. 
it seems to matter that they're able to assert their rank in terms of the decisions that are being made or often the decisions that are not being made. From the question about, in the end, what political strategy was going to be used to deal with the pandemic, because the bit where I kind of pull back a bit from Charity's position is when she says, at one point, I didn't want to manage it, I wanted to beat it. And it seems to me that that's the point where I want to say, I'm not entirely sure it's your right to decide that, the authority to decide that needs to be somewhere else. But had she got every right to expect that the people above her, including her own boss, would taking this problem much, much more seriously and being much, much more like her, then absolutely an understanding that she's a total, total frustration and disappointment. And that was the case. That I entirely understand. What she means by beat it is contain it. Her ambition was to do what Australia did, what New Zealand did, what a number of countries did. Now the game's not over, but the idea was to be aggressive enough at the outset that you actually knew where every case was and you shut it down. That's what she meant by beat it. And what frustrated her was that by the time the CDC does an about face and goes from saying this new virus in China is a kind of thing in China and not a risk to American lives, to saying it's already in America and it's too late. In that period, they lost the ability to contain it. They sort of like surrendered before they even tried. And there was a cynical strain in charity that sometimes appears and sometimes doesn't that wondered if they did that intentionally because they thought they couldn't contain it. They just didn't have the ability to do it. But her attitude was, here in California, we as a state might have a shot if we were really aggressive early on. So beat it, she didn't mean beat it in any kind of abstract sense. She was really talking about containment as opposed to mitigation. Mitigation is just you're living with it and trying to minimize the damage, but you don't know where it is and it's moving through your community. And that's where we've been ever since. So if your question is, should she have been less hopeful and more cynical about her political superiors? The answer is probably yes. To this day, she adores Gavin Newsom, the governor of California. And to this day, the story she tells herself is that the things she had to say just couldn't reach him because she was too far down in the administration. And to this day, the kind of bigwigs that Newsom brought in, former Obama administration muckety-mucks and technology entrepreneurs and smart people to help him sort of evaluate and manage the crisis, say that the only thing they did that was of any use was getting what was inside Charity Dean's brain onto Gavin Newsom's desk. Anyway, I'm not sure her take that the only problem was that she was just too far removed from the decision maker and couldn't get in his ear is right. I think that she had more faith than Newsom obviously has himself, that Newsom could get up with maybe her help and explain to the population of California why they were doing what they were doing and that this wasn't a trade-off of lives versus livelihood. This wasn't a trade-off of health versus economy. It wasn't either or, it was neither or both. And then if we contained it early on and made some sacrifice early on, we'd get our economy back faster. She thought all that could be explained. And she thought a, a strategy could be explained and that enough people would buy in that it would be effective. And it's hard to know whether that's true, especially when you, against the backdrop of a president saying that it's all a hoax and a third of our state being in his thrall. I think no matter what Charity Dean or Gavin Newsom did, there would have been pockets of California that would have rebelled. Now, those pockets, interestingly, are largely not where the population centers are, with the exception of a little pocket in Southern California. So it might have been possible to like 
you certainly went impossible to contain it better than we did. But I think you might be right if you're saying that her hopefulness was maybe misplaced. There may be some truth to that. One of the things that she wants to do early on is to close the borders, which is part of the, this strategy, the New Zealand strategy, isn't one of the brute facts about American political life that the state of California couldn't have closed its borders? I don't know enough about this to know whether it's realistic or not. It was a question that they were bandying about, like what they could do. It's funny. There's echoes of what she was proposing happening right now. If you go to a San Francisco's Giants game, you need not only your vaccination card to sit in the vaccination session, you need a driver's license that says you're a California resident. They won't let in people who aren't California residents. So there's discrimination taking place right now to prevent spread of virus at big public events. So what would you have had to do in the extreme? At the very least, and you could have done, you could have been much more vigilant at the airports. Could you have closed the roads between Nevada and California? The answer is, in this particular situation, obviously not. It just wouldn't happen. But imagine a situation where the virus was like 10 times more deadly. I could totally imagine like people figuring out how to change the law. The peculiar thing about this virus, the insidious thing is, it was deadly without being quite deadly enough to generate the draconian response that really was required. It didn't scare everybody quite enough. And enough people were able to say, this thing's not going to touch me in any way, or my children, especially in any way, that it tolerated the kind of default to ordinary life, as opposed to new standards. Michael, the other big bit of history that haunts this story is 1918 and the Spanish flu. And quite a few people have this kind of mantra, which is in the 1918 story in the United States, 1819, Philadelphia was one of the worst hit cities. And St. Louis saw what happened in Philadelphia and learned the lesson. And those few weeks made a big difference, shutting down earlier to the health outcomes in two American cities, One, it was a catastrophe, and one, it was something less than a catastrophe. And people say they want Wuhan to be Philadelphia so that New York, wherever it is, can be St. Louis. And yet the terrible irony is that Wuhan was St. Louis and, you know, Philadelphia was Philadelphia. Why do you think that's the case? It's right at the heart of your story. So we've been talking about the, the lessons from 76 or whatever, but why in the heart of the crisis were the lessons so hard to learn from other cities? Is it because Wuhan's too far away? Is it because the Chinese response is so different? So just briefly, I remember a story I was told of Italian health officials and politicians who brought people over from Wuhan in late March, early April of last year and said to the Chinese, look, we've locked down and it doesn't seem to be working. And the Chinese said, you haven't locked down at all. You have no idea what a lockdown is. We locked down Wuhan, you know, ring of steel around the city, people dying in their homes. This isn't a lockdown. Why was the lesson so hard to learn? So can I back up for just a sec? Because I think one of the extraordinary little vignettes in the book is the two main characters of mine in the White House back in, in the Bush administration, figuring out what exactly happened in Philadelphia and St. Louis. In the moment, St. Louis did not appreciate back in 1918 that the actions it had taken were responsible for a much lower death rate. The takeaway from 1918 was everybody did these things and still the virus got there and people died. Carter Mesher, my main Dr. Wolverine character, 
actually goes and replays 1918, grabbing news, old newspaper articles and figuring out when the interventions occurred and in relation to when the virus first appeared in the city. And he's the one, he and Richard Hatchett are the one who figure out the difference between Philadelphia and St. Louis was the timing of the interventions in relation to the arrival of the virus and change conventional wisdom in the public health community about the interventions. They did work. They just didn't appreciate that they worked. So in the first place, it's hard to see the effect of the interventions when you're in the middle of the thing. There's a fog of battle thing. So that's one problem. The second problem is why the American people were not more alive to their power because it wasn't really explained to them. We had the CDC saying masks didn't work early on. We had the CDC saying that this wasn't a threat. So you have to sort of build that into the understanding. I don't think lockdown to be effective meant welding people inside their homes to die. There are versions of lockdown that worked that were much short of that. Australia is a good example, right? And Cambodia. Cambodia is a great example because Cambodia was basically using the U.S. playbook with help from the CDC and technology provided by the United States, essentially executing the U.S. plan in much harder circumstances and closer to the out original outbreak. So it is bizarre, and it's bizarre to my characters, that Wuhan should have been Philadelphia and we should have learned, and yet we didn't. The thing that really struck me in the, reading the first part of your book, Michael, was my ignorance really about how in principle as you described it prepared the United States could have been and the fact so much thought had already gone into the idea of social distancing because I remember at the time you know so I guess we're talking about like January February like 2020 at least in Britain amongst the kind of people that I am and people are talking to that you look over at Wuhan and thinking these empty streets a whole city essentially locked up and thinking well if this comes here we won't be able to react like that and actually, we looked at Wuhan and although we learned something too late, we learned something that it was possible to do something that I think in our imaginations, we would have said, there is no way a Western country can completely close itself down like that. But the story you're telling is not that. It is actually that the United States, people in the United States had already thought about the possibility of doing this and were unable in the moment to make that politically sell to the people who needed to accept it. They never imagined when they were writing the pandemic playbook, they never imagined you would close everything. It was much more targeted than that. And there were multiple failures that prevented it from being executed as a targeted strategy. But the big one, the thing that made it impossible right from the start was having no testing. The fact that the CDC said they had a test that they were going to distribute and then the test didn't work. And at the same time, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, banned anybody from using their own tests that did work, meant that there was absolutely no way to identify where the virus was, and that they went further, the CDC, and actually barred people from testing, like Americans who had just returned from Wuhan. So when that kind of thing is going on, this whole, like, what the strategy is, is pointless. So there were so many other cock-ups that happened that made any kind of targeted strategy up front, impossible here, but it was possible other places and it was executed. So it didn't ever really have to be total lockdown. The other point is we're kind of talking in the land of containment, but even in the land of mitigation, all right, we're not going to just stop it from, from circulating in the country, but we're going to, we're going to seek to control it better. 
that can be a targeted thing with really good testing. And the amazing thing to me, I mean, this is changing with the Biden administration, was just how slow the CDC under the Trump administration and the Trump administration was to see the power of the absence of good testing and the power of the absence of really rapid testing. And even now, there are like three or four really good rapid COVID tests that are being held up by the FDA because they're not quite as good as the PCR tests. And it's insane. It's just an unintelligent response out of the federal government that made the rest of it inevitable. So I don't think anybody, nobody, not the divisors of the strategy, nobody ever expected that the American population would suffer the kind of lockdown the Chinese imposed on Wuhan. But I didn't think, I don't think they ever thought you would need to. They thought that you'd have the tools to manage it in a more targeted way. Throughout the book, people use, and you use it too, military analogies, battlefield commanders, and so on. But you also have this very telling phrase, the health industrial complex, not the military industrial complex, but the health industrial complex. And it cuts across so many of the different aspects of this, including the the testing failure. It's a distinctively American phenomenon. How important is that to what went wrong? Very important. One of the ways, if you want to get really cynical about it, you can argue that for many of the corporate parties at the center of the pandemic, the pandemic has paid very well. Lab Corp and Quest, two big testing companies here, have been paid billions of dollars by public entities to process tests that are pointless because it takes them 10 days to do it. And billions of dollars. And, you know, it isn't me kind of wandering the landscape seeing this. It's my characters. And one of the characters is a UCSF biochemist named Joe DeRisi, who in response to the CDC failure, spun up a COVID testing lab in San Francisco. At one point, the biggest, fastest testing lab in the country and sought to kind of fill the void. But to do this, of course, he needed to buy supplies from companies He needed to potentially raid the national stockpile to get things like nasal swabs and test tubes. And he needs the cooperation of people who are actually sitting in offices with, you know, people who might have COVID to process, to do the test and send it to him. And what he finds over and over and over again is that there are these incentives baked in to the medical industrial, the health industrial complex that make it impossible for him to give away free COVID testing, free fast COVID testing. One wild example, he realizes very early on that there's going to be a problem in prisons. And he goes to our local prison, San Quentin, and says, look, if this thing gets loose in your place, it's going to be a catastrophe. The way that place is designed, it's got this ancient design, there's no ventilation. One person has it, everybody's going to get it, and you're going to have a wave of death on your hands. And the prison officials kind of hem and haw, and they let him test for one round. And then they say, we can't do this again because we have a contract with one of the big testing companies and we're afraid violating that contract is going to get us in trouble. From that moment, they're unable to test properly in San Quentin prison. And sure enough, the state of California buses some prisoners from Chino into San Quentin. One of them, the test is out, but has not, won't come back for a week, is actually positive with COVID. And I don't know how many people have died. 20, 25, it's a bunch. I mean, there are lawsuits now, but that didn't have to happen. Joe DeRisi would have tested all those prisoners for free once a week, however often he needed to do it, and they could have managed the COVID situation in the prison. And he wasn't allowed to do it because someone else was being paid to do it badly. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of just unbelievable 
incompetency, inefficiency in the Trump administration. The nasal swabs are kind of an incredible story. When he spun up his lab, the one thing he hadn't thought was going to be a problem was going to be the test kits themselves. And it turned out that, you know, he could do everything but get that little stick you put up your nose in order to get the sample in the first place. And the Trump administration said, no problem, we've got him in the national strategic stockpile. And so he's very excitedly waiting for this truck to come across country from the, I think, someone in the FDA. And they wait two or three days and it's not there and two or three more days and nothing happens. And then he hears that actually what's happened is the truck arrived in Sacramento. Someone opened it up and it wasn't nasal swabs. It was Q-tips and they actually don't have nasal swabs. And his hunt for nasal swabs, it's a story in and of itself. And it's not just the inefficiency of the health industrial complex. It's also the lean efficiency of the market not preparing for this kind of thing. Just in time manufacturing and really taught supply chains that when bad things happen and all of a sudden you need five times more nasal swabs or 100 times more nasal swabs than you ever had, the thing does not respond well. So you saw how fragile, through his eyes, you saw how fragile what seemed to be extremely well-equipped society was. And I thought, you know, I was struck in the very beginning, I was struck by this report that had been done by huge numbers of experts at great, great expense by the Nuclear Threat Initiative in Washington back in the middle of 2019, where they asked the quixotic question, which countries on earth are best prepared for a pandemic? And number one and number two were you and me, was the US and the UK. It's something really remarkable, right? It's sort of like you're going and looking at football teams and you're seeing that, wow, they have all the best athletes and they have the most money, they must win. And then when they lose all their games, there's some pathology to do that's interesting. I mean, the only thing I would add, I thought the, the swab story was absolutely fascinating the way that you told it. And obviously that was also a, a geopolitical story because the one place they could have been found was China. Yeah. There's a story that I don't think ever been told that I just left on the cutting room floor that someone will tell. It's worthy of a documentary film, is what happened in China when they realized these foolish Americans didn't have swabs and you could sell them anything and they'd think they were swabs. And there were 10 factories that were repurposed to manufacture fake swabs for every one that manufactured real swabs. And, you know, Joe DeRisi has landing on his doorstep boxes filled with things that look like swabs, but they are repurposed eyelash applicators. I met a man, actually, Chinese-American guy, who made himself the world's authority on the Chinese swab manufacturing market. And it was interesting that the market, in response to the surge in demand, didn't just instantly turn itself to making the actual thing that everybody needed, but found ways to make more money by defrauding people, by making cheaper, unusable things that could pass as the thing. It was a mess. It was a mess. And yeah, that we find ourselves relying on Chinese manufacturers to deal with this virus that China had manufactured. I don't mean that in a lab. I mean, they'd come out of China. It was a remarkable situation. You end with, I don't think this is a plot spoiler, but Charity decides to get out of public health and get inside the health industrial complex herself as the only way to really get a grip on some of these questions. Gavin Newsom, the person you say she still believes in, he's in political trouble. Some of the governors who seem to have been doing well back in the day are now suffering. Ron DeSantis, who I remember a year ago seemed to be a figure of fun, is now being talked about as the next president of the United States. Where's the hope in this story for you? 
So give it six months on the political fortunes of these people. Yeah, I don't think that Ron DeSantis' story is over by any means. Yeah, no, I think I think we're sort of in the beginning rather than the, even the middle. And it's funny, writing this, I did not feel hopeless. I felt exhilarated because the characters were so incredible to me. So the hope was that we got dealt a blow that wasn't fatal, but was sufficiently harsh that we'll wake up. This goes back to the conversation we had last time we spoke. What is going to alert Americans to the importance of their government functioning? And I mean, I think you're seeing signs that they are. I mean, it's slow, right? This is not going to happen overnight. But the Biden administration, Biden has been able to do stuff that was unthinkable five years ago. Americans are kind of defaulting to looking to their government to solve all kinds of problems that we were told, you know, in the last four years, government wasn't there to solve. So there's hope there. There's hope also just in the, like the resources of the society there that you read about. I felt very hopeful that just knowing these people were in my country. I tell you what our hope is. The hope is of, yeah, we, we were supposed to be league champions. Yeah, we lost all our games. But we actually have this very talented team that's just really badly coached and really badly managed. So that's a better situation to be in than having a team that has no talent whatsoever. And even if you coach it well, it's not going to do anything. So the hope is that, that we figure out we've got this management problem on our hands and we solve it. You may remember that we spoke to Michael Lewis about 18 months ago, so just before the pandemic, about his previous book, which is about American government, but also about what Donald Trump had done to it. And it feels a little bit like a premonition too. If you want to hear that episode, we will tweet the link at tppodcast underscore. Next week, I'm doing an event with the LRB with Pankaj Mishra talking about the History of Ideas series, but also about some of the many authors from all over the world whom I didn't discuss that Pankaj is going to tell me about. If you'd like to join for that, just follow the link on Twitter or at the LRB, lrb.co.uk, and you can find out how to get tickets. Coming up on Talking Politics next week, we're going to be talking about the elections this week in England, in Wales, regional, but also in Scotland. And soon we're going to be talking to Neil Ferguson, the historian, about the politics of catastrophe. Do join us for all that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. The calm in your voice is like someone talking to a pilot who's about to crash. (laughs) (laughs) That comes from two things, Michael, being the mother of two boys that are 20 months apart (laughs) and being an audio producer. It's very similar. (laughs) ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. 
a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> but you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>